All right. Well, welcome here. We're going to uh, start a new Sunday School series um, at this time, and it is on sort of a global history of the church, um, how God is working in different countries and, and continents around the world. Uh, in the uh, email that was sent out, it said I was going to be looking at China today. That's not true. We will look at China, but I thought it was important to take a look and ask the question, why global Christianity? Why a history of what God's doing in different continents? Why we look at that in the first place? So what I have put together today is a collection of my thoughts on why it is important to study the history of what God is doing in different countries. All right? So let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you guide our minds and our hearts, that you give us clarity, that you give us vision, and that you give us hope. And we pray this as we look at all this stuff. In your name, amen. So the first question, I have two questions today. Why global Christianity? And second, why global Christian history? Okay? So why global Christianity? And the first point I would like to make is maybe a, a basic one, but we can never say it enough. This whole world is God's world. So in Genesis 1, verse 1, and by the way, we're going to be looking at a lot of different verses and stuff. You don't have to flip there. You can just listen. But in Genesis 1, verse 1, the whole word of God starts off with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 33, verse 6 to 9, we read, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And then in Psalm 24, verse 1, we get an idea of, as a result of being the creator, he is the owner. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. So at the very beginning, God created the world and everything in it, and as creator, he owns all of it. As creator, then, he has the right to grant new life to those whom he pleases. So in Romans 9, in response to God's right to choose for salvation some and not others, the question is asked, is God unjust? And the answer in verse 14 is no. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So another question is asked, why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And the answer in verse 20 is not really maybe a satisfying answer to the person who asked the question, but the answer is, who are you to answer back to God? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
So you see, the first thing we need to realize when we talk about people coming to Christ all over the world is that it is the work of God and it is based in his sovereignty as creator. That's how it's accomplished. His choice to determine who will be his people is rooted in the fact that he is in a different category than everyone else. He is the uncreated one who creates. We are the created ones. So when we talk about a global Christianity, we recognize a God who is over all and is entirely other than all that he's created. That's the first place we start. So the first point, why global Christianity? This whole world is God's world. Point number two is the gospel was opened up to the world, to the Gentiles. God's people started off as a geographically situated and defined people. They were situated in the land promised to them, the land of Canaan. And they were to be separate from all the nations around them. All of the Old Testament purity laws pointed to this but they were not to be insular. They were to be separate, but they were not to be insular. Rather, they were to be a light to the nations around them. So in Isaiah 42, verse 6, the Lord says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. And in Isaiah 49.6, he says, is it, it is, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So though not of the surrounding cultures, they were still in the midst of the surrounding cultures. Even as we as Christians are to be in the world, but not of it. And in Isaiah 60, verse one to three, speaking of the future glory of Israel, which stands in continuity to geographic Israel, we read this. Arise, shine, for your light is come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Of course, this is fulfilled in Christ. In John 8, verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, this light spreads through us to the world as we go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit 
teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Notice, though, that at the beginning of this commission, if you were to look at it, Christ says, all authority has been given to me, and then to go. So the authority has been given to Christ. He is the light of the world. He is the creator, the sovereign one. So go. This ties the spreading of the light back to the first point, that of God as sovereign. And he will give light to see to whom he wills and where he does will it. Darkness will not prevail. If you look at the letters in the New Testament, there's instruction upon instruction as to how the gospel has spread to the Gentile people. And it's vast, so I'm not going to get into it all now enough, but just to say that Israel was always meant to be a light, and we are to be a light. And the spreading of the gospel is spreading light. So in the Israel in the Old Testament has always been the seed and prototype of what God wants was to do, exploding it and opening it and expanding it in Christ. So why a global Christianity? God is creator and he's sovereign, it's his world. And two, because God's intention is that this light of the gospel is shared and spread through the nations. Why global Christianity? Point number three, heaven is for the nations. So in Revelation 5, verse 9 to 10, the saints sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In Revelation 7, verse 9 to 10, we read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So heaven is for the nations. In the new heavens and the new earth, all the nations will be represented and united in the worship of God. Peace will reign not because national and cultural and racial differences will be abolished, but because we will all be united to our king. It's very easy sometimes to think that hev in heaven we'll all be ubiquitous. We'll all just sort of be glorified and we will all be 
the prototype of the um, re represent the prototype of this spiritual body that we're all just sort of the same thing. No. There will be nations and cultures and people who express things differently. We're not united because all of that is abolished. All the things we differences we have even on this earth. It's not abolished. We are united around the king. And so there will be no racism and and uh, oppression because of our differences. Not only that, in heaven, we will continue to see that God is a creator of great diversity. God's infiniteness is, in, is part of every aspect of his character and thus part of his knowledge, so we could say he is infinitely knowledgeable. And creativity, he is infinitely creative. And we see evidence of his love for diversity on earth, don't we? And we will see it in heaven. So we see it in nature, the incredible diversity. We see it in people, the incredible diversity. If you think about it, would an artist get more renown for a painting, for painting a picture and then copying it over and over and over again. Or in creating a multitude of different but equally impressive paintings. Well, in the first instance, we might say the artist is limited in his skill and creativity. He does the same thing over and over and over. But in the other, we may wonder if he is limited at all. Right? Much more glory in the diversity that is created. Without being able to get into God's mind, I do believe that, it, that, it is so, that he is so diverse in his creativity because it highlights the limitlessness of his mind and ability, thus affording him glory. If you are all powerful, all creative, all knowledgeable, and you want to express that, it seems to me diversity is a great way to do that. But this is no less true when it comes to people. Though we all have heads, two arms, two legs, there is not two people that are exactly the same. Randy Alcorn writes, the kings and leaders of the nations will be united because they share the king's righteousness and with him they will rejoice in their differences as a tribute to his creativity and multifaceted character. Tribes, peoples, and nations will all make their own particular contribution to the enrichment of life in the New Jerusalem. We don't all contribute the same way. We won't all be expressing everything the same way. And it will be beautiful. So let's not wait for that day to start appreciating God's love for a diverse people all around the world and the, the flavors they bring to things and who they are because of their cultures. We've got to think beyond a Western Christianity. 
and appreciate it and love it as God's intention, even for the new heavens and the new earth. Let us consider it even now as we behold the nations coming to the Lord. Let's love it. There should be no um, Christian racial um, preference or prejudice in our minds. Well, why a global Christianity? Another one is, today we are aware of what's going on in other parts of the world. Essentially, we have no excuse. We can't ignore it. Travel and the internet have opened up our world like never before. You can turn on the news or search the internet and find out what is happening in other parts of the world. And we see this, we see this with the war in Ukraine, don't we? We can follow developments in near real time. Not only this, but we can chat face to virtual face with anyone around the world. Gone are the days when we have to mail a letter and wait for a response. And when I was growing up, we might have to wait a week, a couple weeks. But man, think about the olden days when I had to go on horse. You never knew if the horse died and the guy would have to continue on foot. I don't, it was not a reliable system. One thing that COVID and the war in the Ukraine has demonstrated is how interconnected we are economically and in terms even of our health. People are not confined within their country, but travel, move around, which increases the spread of global pandemics. Globally connected supply chains are easily disrupted. When it comes to a global Christianity, the nations are also interconnected by many of the same means and factors. Not only are missionaries intentionally sent out, but through the internet, a person in one country can have a direct influence in another. Also, as people move around and travel, settling in different countries, the nations are increasingly mixed. So not only do we go to the nations, but the nations come to us. Now, being part of the local church is incredibly important. It is a microcosm of what the Lord is doing around the world in the universal church. So we see Christianity worked out in the local church amongst local believers in ways that you won't appreciate if you think about the global church. Some people think, well, you know, I'm just a Christian, I'm part of the church, I'm part of the global church. I don't like the people in the congregation that I (laughs) go to. I can stay home. Well, you're not gonna experience the care from the global church, no matter how connected we are, like you will experience in the local church. You won't be a blessing no matter how connected we are as you would in as being part of the local church. 
we need the local church to see and appreciate Christianity in action, to live it out. That's why it's important to be part of a local church. However, here's the however. While it is difficult to get our mind around the global universal church, we can now appreciate it like we have never before been able to throughout history. Through our interconnectedness. So I'm not saying that, great, now we're interconnected and we can just be part of this local church and I don't have to really get messy and dirty with local believers. No. But it is not an excuse to ignore what's happening out in the world. We have the opportunity, like we've never had before in history, to appreciate what God is doing in the universal worldwide church. Resources from organizations like the Voice of the Martyrs bring issues in the global church to our living rooms. And it's a great resource if you haven't ever read Voice of the Martyrs. Um, really a great prayer resource in terms of trying to think about what, how Christians are suffering even around the world. Finally, it is helpful to see what God is doing around the world as a means of hope and encouragement. So you could be very discouraged by what God is doing in one area, but encouraged by another. See, God doesn't spread the gospel in a ubiquitous fashion and timeline all over the world. Switch my page, sorry. Give me one sec. So, where Christianity is maybe bleak in one area, it may be very hopeful, vibrant, and encouraging in another. And we can bemoan the godlessness in one area, even the godlessness we see around us, but be encouraged by ways that God is moving somewhere else. And then maybe pray and hope for revival even here, that it could happen here. So we need to be aware of what's happening globally, even just for our own encouragement. So that is a, a case for why we should think globally as Christians. But I want to narrow it down a little bit, given the fact that we have a series coming up on why global Christian history. The first was a look at a case for why we should think globally as Christians and, and the privilege of that. But now why even look at the history in a particular nation? Why not just look at what's ha out there and what's happening now, be encouraged and move on? Why consider how God has worked and moved in the past? That's what we're going to be looking at in the next little while how God has worked throughout history in different countries and continents. So as I thought about this, came up with a couple reflections. And by the way, none of this is exhaustive. I, my mind is exhausted, but not exhaustive. Um, you will probably think of another many connections, but First thing I thought about is it is important to understand and appreciate the factors that have shaped the flavor of Christianity in a region. 
is important, and this is why. Christianity is polyvocal and multicultural, as has been seen. Wherever the gospel goes out, it hits a cultural diversity to which it then is adapted. Many times this results in distinctive, distinctives in how it is applied. We could call it an applied Christianity, but hopefully not in a compromising of the truths therein. So Christianity, when it hits culture, will be adapted, molded, hopefully in the expression, not the truth. Where it is uh, changing the truth, we've got a problem. There are some practices which may be accepted in one area that are rejected in another. So debates over ethics and practice play a great role in shaping the diversity we find within Christianity. For example, the Jesuits saw no harm in Chinese converts honoring their ancestors, while the Dominicans and the Franciscans thought it was idolatrous. Western missionaries in Africa would likely be opposed to polygamy, while indigenous church leaders were more accepting of the idea. In the 1990s, charismatic Christianity found root in Africa and many began preaching a message of healing and power. This would have found a receptivity in the lower socioeconomic status of people in, say, Ghana. It would have also captured the attention of the upwardly mobile who sought to be free from their circumstances. So if then you were to go to an African Christian and deal with them, you may find yourself untangling notions of a health and wealth mentality, possibly. In countries like China and Africa, persecution had the effect of deepening the commitment of believers. To here you may find a very courageous Christianity, one that is not likely to compromise with changing idolatries and socio-political expectations like you might find in the West, where we do tend to accommodate. Interestingly enough, we haven't been really persecuted like they have in maybe other areas. It's one of the historical and cultural watersheds of our time that I think is defining and will be defining and, and part of, of how we are shaped in the West moving forward is how gender and sexuality are worked out in the church and how this seems to be a largely Western phenomenon. There are many other countries where they say, oh, that's absolutely just wrong. <laughs> but in the West, we seem to tolerate that. And churches may be accommodating to that. I think down the road, in 100, 200, 300 years, if we're here, God willing, people are looking at church history, they look at the West and say, that was one of the ethics 
the things that the church, that shaped the church and gave it flavor to the West. I pray that God will wake the church up and help us to stand firm. So it's important to understand or look at global Christian history because factors in history have shaped Christianity in different regions in different ways. And it's really good to be aware of that. Finally, why global Christian history? Well, we marvel at God's providence and sovereignty when we look at a global Christian history. One of <laughs> my favorite things to look at, and Randy Alcorn has done a great job. He's the director of um, Eternity Ministries, I think it is. Um, but he writes a lot about heaven. I love reading about heaven. I love reading about God's bigger plans for the universe, the world, heavenly realm. The fact that there's things happening in that realm which we don't see. Some of my, my favorite things and the things that give me the most joy is thinking about these new heavens and this new earth. And just as there are a, a hierarchy of angels, Gabriel, Michael, being described as chief among them, it is reasonable to assume that Satan, the god of this world, has his own hierarchy amongst those angels that have fallen. These chief demons under Satan's rule are given this world as their roaming grounds. They blind the eyes of unbelievers and keep them in chains, spiritual chains. They would do everything they could to derail God's plans, even the spread of the gospel. This whole world lies in the power of the evil one we see in 1 John 5, 19, where it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, we read in Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 2. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Michael Heiser, I don't know if you heard about Michael Heiser, he wrote a book called The Unseen Realm. And this book was a theological, um, a systematic sort of um, biblical theology on that realm throughout from Genesis to Revelation. And he uh, makes the argument and, um, that 
there are hierarchies of fallen angels then who are spread throughout the world and have sort of chief oversight in different areas and things. It's, you may agree or not agree, but one thing I think that the book Unseen Realm really does well is it really opens up your eyes to a whole new reality that we can so easily forget. We are told by Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church he is building. And implied here is that they will surely try. Why would he say it if they weren't going to try? The gates of hell will not prevail, but they will surely try. See, Satan is given some authority. Listen to his words in Luke 4, verse 6, when he spoke to Jesus during Jesus' temptation to bow before Satan. He, Satan says, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. So you see, while he has some authority, though, that has been given him in this world, even Satan admits that it is a granted authority. Even Satan will admit that it is a granted authority. It has been given, delivered to me. <laughs> Which implies that there's someone greater. I find that remarkable when he said it has been delivered to me. He's actually recognizing that God is greater than him. We know that it is on the cross that Christ has triumphed over Satan and all his would-be rulers. So in Ephesians 1, verse 19 to 23, we read, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ stands above and over all rule, all authority, even that granted to Satan, that whatever has been granted to him to do. In Colossians 2, verse 15, we see that Christ disarmed the powers and authorities through his work on the cross, and he, he shamed them with that work. So all of this is to say that when we consider God's work throughout history, we see God's sovereignty and power over Satan's rebellion against him. Even in this world, even in the authority that Satan has to do what God has granted him, God, we see, is higher Though Satan may try, though they may try and rebel against the spread of his church, it will not prevail. They will not prevail. So this whole world then is a stage 
within a cosmic realm where God is glorified for his sovereignty against all opposition, even angelic or cosmic opposition. We're on a stage. It's easy to think that there is a disconnect between our world and this unseen realm. It's some other place. What we do here, it has no impact. But we are on a stage. This is God's stage to highlight his glory. And we are in it. (laughs) It's, It's sort of like God says, okay, this world's a stage. I'm going to give it over to Satan. He's going to try his best. I'm going to give him authority to do that. But watch me work. And we're part of that. The world is part of that. It's almost like in your face, Satan. <laughs> you're, you're, so we, we can see when we think about the church globally and history and how God has worked, we can see the sovereignty and providence of God in this worldwide stage. And we should marvel. We should marvel. How can we not marvel at it? This is a short one today. I'm not going to go all the way down to the, the end, but I think over the next weeks when we consider how God has worked in the church over history in different places, we, I hope that we marvel at it. It can sometimes be a little bit dry in terms of its details, and it's like, oh, history, if you have any experience with history, maybe you think, oh, history is so dry. And, and, I, and I'm hoping that as we go through this, if not from the front, at least in your minds, we're, we're drawing it back to these principles of marveling at what God is doing on this cosmic stage throughout history. That's where I'm going to end. Any questions or thoughts that you might, might have about this? Yes? Michael Heiser. Michael H-E-I-S-E-R. Michael Heiser. I, was, I, I thought it was important to set up the history with this message because history can be a little bit, oh, history, dry. <laughs> Why study it? I, I, I wanted to go into this series on, that we're going into with some overview of why it's important and the privilege we have of learning from history and thinking globally about Christianity. Well, if there are no questions, you can come talk to me after. You can share your thoughts. I find it really quite amazing. Boy, we're part of something big, aren't we? <laughs> it's so easy to think small when it comes about to God. It's just God and us, God and us. What a d- yes, God is with us and forth, but it's not just God and us. 
how small that is in our thinking. We, we're part of something big and wondrous, and when we die and get to glory, we're going to have a whole new heaven, a whole new earth with culture, with, I think, industry. We're not going to sit in clouds with some harp singing songs all day long. Uh, don't send me there. It's going to be a new world and a new earth with people who are designed to create and do and work and just like Adam was designed to do in, in the beginning. Yes? To what? Fretting? Yes. Fretting. Yes. Yes, because when you think it, it's... You have to realize, um, you know... <laughs> It's, it's, it's easier to, th it's, it's nice to see that you're part of something big and solid and, 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 and you're not, it's, it's not just me and God because you can start to think, well, then what if God gives up on me? Well, he's not because he's got plans for his church and his people that are not, don't start and end with you. <laughs> it's bigger than you. So very good point. Okay, well, let's pray and then I'm going to let you visit and think about these things. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and this, this chance to look at the fact that you are not just a geographically defined God or a personal God or someone small, but you have this world in your hands. You've got purposes for this world that you've had from before time and that you will be glorified in the work that you're doing through your people all through this world. Lord, where we have maybe been saturated with a Western Christianity, and where we need to open up our eyes and our appreciation and our affections even for other Christians of other cultures and nations and even so much stranger than we think we are, so much different. I pray, Lord, that you will do this work in us, that we may be excited about you and give you glory. In your name we pray, amen.